I want to say welcome to you one more time and let you know that um, today's going to be a hard day. The preaching time is going to be hard. Um, not hard to understand. It's going to be hard to hear and hard to accept. And as I was driving over here to the building today and thinking about what was ahead during the preaching time, I think my only consolation is that at least it's not Mother's Day. <laughs> I would not, um, I wouldn't do that to you. One of my convictions about preaching, maybe it's, it's probably better to call this a goal. One of my goals in preaching and one of my, one of my beliefs is that the tone of the sermon should more or less match the tone of the text that we're in. The tone of the sermon should match the tone of the text. So, for instance, if I'm preaching a message on um, something like grace or comfort or thanksgiving, I don't want to preach angry. That would be a mismatch in tone, right? But on the flip side, when the text is difficult and offensive... I believe that it's still a good thing and a good goal for us to enter into that tension as well. And for us to put ourselves out there a little bit and be willing to offend and to be offended. I mean, what else can we do? I mean, if it's our goal to be faithful to the scriptures, that's just going to happen sometimes. The problem is that very few of us think that we have problems that we need to be confronted about. I think most of the church is pretty happy to hear the world preached against and to hear the world be offended with the gospel. We will say amen to that. Go, go offend sinful people with the truth of the gospel. We're all for that. But when it comes time to offend um, the people of God with hard truth, then we're not for that anymore. That's when we start to have a real problem. Um, But that happens in our passage today. The preacher offends the people of God. Now, the result in the end is good, but the getting there is really hard. I think it would have been really hard. All this has a good result. We'll talk about that more last week, but... Getting there is is really, really hard. And I would just say, you know this as well as I do, that a good result, like when you are actually offended by what's being spoken, the truth being spoken to you, a good result is completely dependent on the Holy Spirit taking the truth and applying it in such a way that the hearer is edified and repentant and built up instead of just angry. Completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. And so we have that same need today, and we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit will do that same work here among us today. But before we get going, I just want to say pastorally, just right from the beginning, that I love you, and I'm for you, and God is for you. Um, But I have a sacred duty to discharge, and God has a work that he's doing in all of our hearts, including mine. And most of the time, as you know, that means some painful moments of hearing hard truth. And so that's, um, that's where we're headed today. Now, 
Let's just take a moment to think about where Luke 3 fits into the grand scheme of things, okay? We've been through the first two chapters, finished that last Sunday. Now here we are at Luke 3. Luke 3 is a preparation for learning about the kingdom of God. We've kept that theme in front of us so far, the kingdom of God. We're coming here to learn what the kingdom of God is like. Luke 3, this, this one chapter here is a preparation for learning about the kingdom of God. And John the Baptist is the central figure. And we already know from chapter 1, and we'll be reminded in this text, that his role is to prepare people for the Lord. He has a a preparatory mission. They're not ready to learn about the kingdom of God yet. Jesus will come proclaiming the kingdom of God in chapter 4. But the people are not ready for that yet. They're not ready until they hear what John has to say. There's a necessary word of preparation before we start learning about the kingdom of God. And so we're going to take this material in chapter 3. We'll take it over a two-week period today and next Sunday. Understanding that spending time here prepares us to start to learn about the kingdom of God. Okay? Until we let the message of chapter 3 sink into our hearts, we're not ready. They weren't ready, and neither are we. So let's, let's begin. Let's listen. Let's read the text first, um, verses 1 through 9. I'll invite you to stand in just a minute. I want you to know that you know, as we get into the text and start reading it, right away we're going to run into some really hard words and people that we don't know who they are, probably. Okay, And if, if you look at the text, Luke 3, the very first verse there, you'll notice the word tetrarch three times. Luke is just telling us who the governors of these different areas are. Okay? He's going to talk about who's ruling in Galilee and areas that are northeast of there. So as you see these different geographical um, notes, just realize, okay, Judea's down here, Galilee's in the north, and then he's also telling us about areas northeast of Galilee, just to give us some geographical and historical contexts. Okay? All right, let's read the word. I invite you to stand in honor of God and his word. Luke 3, verses 1 through 9. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We pray, God, the Holy Spirit, that you would please come and apply the word to our hearts today. Please apply this words, these words to our hearts in such a delicate and tender way that we feel all of the weight and all of the pain, and yet the result is not a killing and a death and despair, but that the result could actually be good. That is a, an extremely delicate task, and only, only you, the Holy Spirit, can do that. So I pray for that kind of ministry to us today. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Right, please be seated. Uh, before we dive into the content of John's message, let's consider briefly his method. Let's talk about his method first. We know that it's his task to prepare people for the Lord. We know that from Luke 1, and we had that repeated to us here in verse 4. Prepare the way of the Lord. Okay, We know his role is to prepare prepare people, but how is he going to prepare people? What's his method going to be? Well, according to verse 3, his method looks like this. He's proclaiming. The word in Greek is keruso. It means to proclaim, to preach. His method, his way of preparing people for the Lord is by preaching to them. Now, you know, the job of a preacher is simple. The job of a preacher is to speak to people the word of God regardless of the consequences. The job is simply to proclaim regardless of the consequences and regardless of the results. And there's nothing inherently bad or undesirable about that. The problem is that we love to be an authority to ourselves and we resist the the voice of authority that presumes to tell us under the authority of the word of God what is right and wrong and what to do and what not to do and what to believe and what not to believe. We don't, in other words, we don't want to be preached at. Is there a word in our context, with a more negative connotation than preachy and being preached at. We don't like it. And one of the great ironies about our dislike of being preached at is that we all really want to hear from God. We all want to hear from God. We want to know what he thinks and hear a personal word to us and get his mind on something. What we wouldn't give to hear from God. 
But when his voice and his message come to us in the voice of the preacher, speaking the word of God under the authority of God, we don't want to hear it. That's not the package that we want the voice of God to come to us in. And yet, if we're honest, we have to admit that this has been God's mode of operation since time immemorial. God spoke to David, but God spoke to David through Nathan the prophet. Another man came to him and spoke the word of God to David and called him out. And God spoke to his people Israel, but through Moses. And God spoke to his people Israel, but through the other prophets, Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah and others. God sends preachers to tell his people what he wants them to know. And you might think, yeah, well, it's all different now because now we have the Bible. Now we have the word of God. We can get to it on our own and get God's mind on something. So doesn't that mean that we don't need the preacher anymore? That we can hear the voice of God here and we don't need someone else to tell us about it or be preachy to us. And if that is your response, I would say that's a response of a very good Bible student. To, to go to that and say, yeah, well, we have, the, we have God's words now. Yes, that's absolutely right. But a good Bible student will also admit that when Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him to preach the word to the New Testament church. Ke ruxon ton logon. 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. The job of a preacher isn't so much to tell people information that they don't have available elsewhere as it is to remind people of what they already know but have been unwilling to act upon. The preacher's job is to exhort and urge and present the word with urgency and compel obedience. And with that in mind, I think we all need to be preached to. At least I know I do. I need to be reminded of what I already know but have been unwilling to obey. I need to be compelled with urgency to do it. And I need to be urged to repent and to believe. And that happens in this text. And so it's also going to happen in this room today as well. So John is a preacher. What's his message? What's he preaching? What's this message that is so important for people to hear if they're going to be prepared to learn about the kingdom of God? The content of his message is found in verses 7 through 9. There's actually more content than that. There's content further on down in the passage that we'll talk about next Sunday. Today we're just going to focus on the content in verses 7 through 9. And if we break his message down, we can see that he really has three main points. And this is his first one. His first point is this. Everything is not okay. The first thing he wants people to know is that everything is not okay. Verse 7 is a shot across the bow. 
It's an arresting, offensive signal that things are not okay. How do we know that things are not okay? Well, think about it this way. Most days when someone like me gets up to speak to a group of people, most speakers today will begin their message with a joke or some kind of a humorous remark. That kind of sets everybody at ease. It feels, feels right, feels comfortable in our culture. That's how most speakers kind of settle themselves and it helps the audience to settle in. The late Dr. Stanley Toussaint from Hinckley, right up the road, longtime professor of New Testament at Dallas Seminary, one of the luminaries at Dallas Seminary, taught Chuck Swindoll, taught Tony Evans, taught Haddon Robinson, taught Howard Hendricks. Stanley Toussaint from Hinckley opened almost every sermon with a parrot joke. He had this huge file of jokes about parrots. And so he would, he would tell one, and of course, the older he got, the more advanced in years he got, the cuter it became, of course. Here's this, here's this old man, this old preacher, and what's he going to say? Well, he wants to tell us a parrot joke. Nothing wrong with that. Lots of advantages to that. Everyone loves a good parrot joke. I just share that with you to notice along with you that John the Baptist does a kind of opposite thing. He is not concerned about breaking any ice with his audience. He adopts the opposite strategy. He addresses the crowds that come to him, verse 7, with the words, you brood of vipers. Think about how different that is from telling a parrot joke. That really is just about the most offensive thing that he could have said to them. He really couldn't have said anything that would cut more than you brood of vipers. We we think, well, what does he mean by that? You remember in John 8 when Jesus addresses the Jews that come to him, and he says to them, you are of your father the devil. Probably that's John's meaning here. His meaning is debated. I think that that is the best way to take it, that he has the same idea in mind. The devil, of course, has long been associated with the serpent, the snake. His meaning is probably, you are of your father, the devil. You are children of the devil. That fits with the context of what's going to come next, where he's going to talk to them about their father and who they think their father is. And he's telling them right off the bat, you are of your father, the devil. You're a brood of vipers. And think about what that does to his audience right off the bat. It, it, what it does is it takes people who very likely thought that their religious lives were very well ordered. And it lets them know that, um, no, things are not okay for you. And this really is the first thing that we have to know if we're going to learn anything about the kingdom of God. In order to be prepared to learn about that kingdom, the first thing that we have to know is that things in our own little kingdom are not okay. There's going to be enough in John's message to offend everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike. Okay, this is the part that's going to be offensive to non-Christians, people who are not presently following Jesus. 
Just warning you up front. This is the part that's going to cut. Maybe you hold a view of yourself that's something like this. Well, if there's a God, he's got to be pretty happy with me. I mean, I'm a pretty moral person, at least compared to most other people that I know. I'm kind most of the time. I give some money to charity. I do a little volunteer work. I help my neighbors shovel snow when we get a big snow. Surely God would be okay with me. I don't think about him much, but he couldn't be angry with someone like me. If that's a more or less fair description of how you view yourself and view God, the voice of John the prophet has something to say to you, and it's something very offensive. And his word to you is that you bear a closer resemblance to Satan than you do to God. Even though that's your view of yourself, you bear a closer resemblance to the devil than you do to God. Yes, you are made in the image of God. That's true. And for that reason, your life is of infinite value. But you are completely fallen and sinful on the inside. And you have not honored God. And you have not obeyed God. And you reject any outside authority over you. And that is the nature of Satan. The rejection of an outside authority and refusal to honor God and obey God. That in itself makes you a child of the devil and not a child of God. Now, if that strikes you as strange to hear someone assault your identity like that and tell you that you're not who you think you are, remember who John is talking to in this passage. He's talking to the children of God, God's own covenant people, and calling them children of the devil. If he's calling the people of God, the children of God, children of the devil— How much more is it true of us who are not Jews? You're not prepared to hear about this thing called the kingdom of God until you've been informed that things are not okay in your own little kingdom. And you probably don't realize it. And that's why the voice of John is so important because it rattles us and shakes us and offends us deeply. so offensive but it lets us know that everything is not okay that's John's first point John's second point is that obedience is not optional obedience to what John presents what he tells people to do is not optional in other words you can't disregard his message without eternal and dire consequences how do we know Well, two times John makes reference to God's imminent wrath. Once at the end of verse 7, he mentions the wrath to come. And then once at the end of verse 9, he talks about being cut down and thrown into the fire. And the message is pretty clear. Hey, God's judgment is ready. It's here. 
If you do not hear and respond to this message, well, just know that the head of the axe is sharpened and it's waiting near the root. Wrath and fire await those who do not respond to this message. Obedience is not optional. It's mandatory. And this, this point that we're making here is so important to build into our framework for understanding the kingdom of God. We make a mistake if we think that the kingdom of God is simply one option among many for living a fulfilled and satisfied life. And it would be really easy to think that. It would be really easy to think, yeah, I'll try Christianity. I'll try this kingdom of God stuff and see if it works out for me. And if it doesn't, that's okay. I'll try another path. Because, you know, the kingdom of God actually is really attractive. It has some really attractive elements. It's philanthropic. We get to love people. Who doesn't want to love people? That's what this kingdom is all about. And it's benevolent. We get to be kind to people in the kingdom of God. How great is that? It's beautiful and it's grace and kindness and love. And we want those things. We want to live in a kingdom like that. So it's really attractive in many respects. And we may be even likely to choose it because we're enamored with Jesus and his lifestyle and his ethic. And we say, yeah, that's the kingdom that I want to opt into. But we have to know that religion is not a beauty contest. That we don't just, it's not a matter of picking the most attractive thing. John's not giving a sales presentation here. He's not making a suggestion and inviting people to try this for 30 days. He's not messing around. A couple of months back, we were at a cross-country race just north and west of here. Beautiful fall day. We're out at a cross-country race. Our family is watching our son, and unbeknownst to us and everyone else, really, um, a runner had collapsed way out on the back of the course, way, way, way far away from where anyone goes to watch. Hardly anybody out there, way on the back part of the course. Runner goes down. Someone's got a walkie-talkie, so they radio back to the finish line and say, hey, we got to send somebody out there to pick up this runner who's down. And so here comes this guy in a white truck, and he's got a lot of people to negotiate through to get out to that fallen runner, and he was not messing around. He was one very, very small notch below, like, General Patton territory. Window down, screaming, get out of the way or get run over by this truck. We got out of the way. He was on a mission. And John is here in the same spirit. He is not making suggestions about what people might consider if they want to have a little more fulfilled lifestyle and be a little bit better version of themselves. To be a little richer, a little more blessed, all those things. If we think that that's what the kingdom of God is about, we misunderstand. We must enter the kingdom of God. On God's terms, we have to become obedient to the word or we experience the wrath to come. Those are the options. 
Now, if you think that that's awfully narrow of God and you're revolted by this kind of a do it this way and there's no other way and how could God be like that where there's just this one option and that's so exclusive and I'm going to reject that, I just want to humbly remind you that the great wonder about salvation is not that there's only one way. That's not the amazing thing, that there's only one way to God. The astounding thing, the amazing thing, is that there is any way at all. God was not obligated to save. He's not obligated to be patient. He's not obligated to send prophets and warn people. And yet he has. God has made the way plain. He does not get cute with telling people where to go and how to get to him. On a certain day, at a certain place, John the Baptist pointed to a certain man and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's him. It's only Jesus. God's mercy to us. His first point is that everything's not okay. His second point is that obedience is not optional. The third point, this is the one that's going to cut the deepest, don't try to comfort yourself. Everything is not okay. Obedience is not optional. Don't even begin to try to comfort yourself. That's verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. John knew that it would be very likely that his calls to repent would be met with this attitude of, we don't need to do that. What are you talking about? Abraham is our father. We, we have covenant relationship with God already. Who is this guy? What are you talking about? We're fine. What's the matter with you? And John's message is, don't comfort yourself with that kind of thinking that asserts relationship with God, but ignores the imperatives of God. That's what they had been doing. That's what the people had been doing all along, asserting relationship with God, but ignoring the imperatives of God. His commands to bear fruit. The obligations of the covenant. They were asserting relationship with God, but ignoring the imperatives of God. A few weeks back when we started this series, I, I told you right up front that I have four groups of people in mind in taking this time to go through Luke together. The frustrated, the dreamers, the wounded, and the settled, the frustrated, the dreamers, the wounded, and the settled. And I want to say this today specifically regarding the frustrated. If you're in that group, that group of people who are believers, but they're very, very frustrated with the church, especially the evangelical church. Maybe that's you. Maybe you wouldn't put yourself in that group. If that's not you, if you're not in that group, just know that there are many faithful Christians who are in that group right now. 
And a big reason that there is so much frustration on their part is that the church, in many respects, has not acted like the church. The church, in many respects, has not loved mercy and has not loved purity and has not loved and protected the idea of truth. Or advocated for a just society. Or been found at the side of the vulnerable. Or championed peacemaking and compassion in the other fruits of the Spirit. In many high profile ways, the church has displayed the exact opposite of those things. And for a significant portion of the church, that has been tremendously disappointing and disheartening and disenfranchising and faith-shaking. I would say that it's very obvious at this moment how great we are in need of the message of John that it is most definitely not okay and must not even begin to be a thought in our mind that we could ever assert relationship with God without taking seriously the imperatives of God. His commands to bear this fruit. John's original audience needed that message, and we need that message badly, critically. One of the interesting and really humbling things about the Bible is all these times that we see God's people shown up. God's people shown up right before our eyes because people who don't know God act in a way that is more in keeping with the character of God than God's own people. We see it all the time, all the way back to Abimelech in his relationship with Abraham. Remember, Abimelech's, his character is amazing. And the man doesn't know God. And then here's Abraham, and he's lying, and he's afraid. And Abimelech, the one who doesn't know God, proves to be more godly than Abraham. And then here in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see these shining examples of the hated Samaritans being the ones who do the right thing and they're the godly ones and not the Jewish people because it's the one Samaritan that comes back to say thank you for healing me of leprosy. Where the other nine was only this foreigner found to come back and give glory to God? It's the Samaritan. And then who's the one that stops to help the man who's been robbed on the way to Jericho? How embarrassing. God's own people shown up because the people that don't know God look more like God than they do. We are at that moment. We are at that moment. We, in our context, are at that moment. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us. It happens all the way through the scriptures. We're not better than them. It is not uncommon today to see people who, know, who do not know God 
to be trumpeting and championing things like compassion and mercy and advocacy for the vulnerable and a just society while Christians remain silent. It's not uncommon. It's happening. That the people who don't know God are often displaying those virtues to a greater extent than the people who do know him. The Samaritans are still leading the way. The only question before us is, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Well, there are two options. One is that we can get angry. We can get angry that someone would dare to assert that those other people are more virtuous than we are. We could get angry that someone would dare to assert that there's something wrong in our spiritual life, in our relationship with God. We can get angry and we can kill the messenger. That's what the Pharisees decided to do. That's the option that they took. Rather than repent, they doubled down on pride and they killed the prophet. One option is to get angry. The other option is to repent. To turn. To acknowledge the truth of what the prophet is saying and then turn to pursue the course that he commands. John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's his practical application. That's what all this is driving at. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repent is something you do on the inside. Bearing fruit is something you do on the outside. Remember that John's role is to prepare people for the Lord by turning them back to the Lord. One thing we can choose is to get angry or we can turn back to the Lord and we can repent. What are we repenting of? We're repenting of asserting relationship with God while not taking seriously the imperatives of God. To love each other, to love our enemies, to advocate for the vulnerable, to be peacemakers, to treasure God, to reflect the life of Jesus. And I, myself, I who am standing in front of you, have led the way in these failures in many respects. A spirit-filled person does not just accept the idea of repentance. A spirit-filled person loves the idea of repentance. Someone filled with the Holy Spirit will seek out opportunities to repent. To someone who has the Holy Spirit, repent is a beautiful word. What other kind of life did the Holy Spirit come to impart to us if not a life of repentance? It's a beautiful thing, and it's so good for us. It levels us. It crushes us. It takes our pride, and it grinds it into flour. And we are not ready to learn about the kingdom of God until we understand repentance. 
and are willing to engage it because the very first word of the gospel, even before the word believe, is repent. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And we're not ready to talk about the kingdom of God until we understand repentance. I just want to ask you where your opportunity to repent is today. say this one last thing. Jesus is not frustrated with his church. Jesus is not frustrated with his church. He loves his church. It is his bride. He died for his church. He loves his church so much and he always will. And because he knows and loves his bride... He has given her, according to Ephesians 4, apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why do we have hard conversations with our children? It's because we love them. I love you, church, and I'm for you. And more importantly, Jesus has loved you, and he has died for you. And he has washed away all of our failures and made us clean. And motivated by that great love, because of the great love with which he has loved us, we forget about what lies behind, and we strain forward to what lies ahead, pressing on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, we love you so much. I'll be glorified in this body and in the church worldwide. Crush us and do whatever you need to do to our proud, proud hearts till there's nothing left of us and only Christ. And we pray in his lovely name. Amen.